when you look out there and you have myself and Isaac Bruce and Ricky Fold and Isaac Keem, it's hard not to want to throw the ball down after down after down. And not only that, Coach Vermeil, yeah, he loved to run the football and establish some balance, but he loved bombs over Baghdad too. He loved the <laughs> fact that the ball was going down the field the way that it was. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History Season 6. We're here in LA getting set for Super Bowl 56. So who better to talk to than someone who helped the Rams win their only Lombardi trophy? He's also a finalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame as we speak. He once had six straight 1,300 receiving yard seasons, and he's also a member of the greatest show on turf and the FUFC. What is the FUFC, you say? Well, find out when you watch this episode with Rams wide receiver Tory Holt. Tori, you are a member of one of the most exclusive fraternities in the NFL. It's the FUFC. Did you know that? F-U-F-C. I did not know that. That's the F'd Up Finger Club. Oh, the F'd Up Finger Club. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of the founding members then. <laughs> you are, as we can see, a multi-time member of the F-U-F-C. Do you remember the first time it happened? Yeah, we was playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think it was like 2005, 2006. It was a Thursday night game. We were playing the Steelers, and I was blocking the Shea Townsend on a run play. He went to get away to make the play, and I wasn't let, trying to let him get away to make the play, and my finger got caught in the jersey and it snapped you know it popped out so you know i popped it back in because i was so accustomed to popping them back in i popped them out all the time so popped it back in ran over to the sideline got it taped up and ran back in and, and played and then just over the course of time it would pop out again in practice pop it in it would pop out in games pop it in and then it just got to the point where there was no more ligaments in it. i mean the damage the ligaments were damaged and now that's why it causes the curve that you see now because there's no ligaments in the uh, finger. Trey, check this out. One time we were playing the Seattle Seahawks. So I'm running a route. You know, the guy came down and pressed me. I had a, uh, I had a 10 to 12 yard uh, post route, uh, bang gate. And I get all press coverage. The finger pops out Ugh. on the tape. I pop it back in. I run the route. Boom. Catches the football. Gets tackled. Pop up. Flip the ball to the referee. Run over to the sideline. Get it taped up, run back in and play. So I was used to my fingers popping out, me popping them back in and still playing. Is there anything that that finger at almost a right angle prohibits you from doing at this point? If I'm reaching in my pocket for some change or if I'm reaching in the candy jar for Starburst, which I love, um, I can't really get the greatest of grip anymore. Or they just kind of slide out of this part, this little hole that I have because it's crooked. Um, so um, that's probably the only issues. And then when it gets cold, because it's yeah. arthritic now, um, yeah. it gets a little sore. But other than that, man, it's still functional, as you can see. I mean, it's still functional. The tip still works. Just this part doesn't <laughs> bend. Um, but this is this is a swole version. Now, if I put compression tape on it, the swelling to go down, then you, I can actually move the entire thing. I can move the knuckle. But it's functional. It works. Can you grip a golf club? That's the only thing that matters to me. I can. I can still grip a golf club, which is great. I'm not great at golf, but I can grip separate it. Issue. Yeah, it's a separate issue. But I can grip it, and I can still hit the ball. All right. So I, we had to get that one out of the way earlier because you know, <laughs> Anthony Munoz has one, but like yours is one of the all-time greats. Yours is one of the all-time FUFCs I've ever seen. So let's start way back. When did you fall in love with football? Or did you fall in love oh. with football? Or was it just something that you that you knew you could be good at? Well, I, I've always loved sports from the time I was little. I mean, I played football. I played basketball, played in the neighborhood, a lot of sports, baseball. Uh, my high school coaches 
would allowed for me to continue to play baseball, but baseball was too slow for me. Yeah. Uh, but I've always loved sport, always loved football. And I didn't get a chance to play football early on because my mom thought I was too small. She didn't want her little boy running out there and getting banged around and possibly getting hurt. That's all she thought was if I played, I would get hurt. Uh, so I didn't play. I didn't play until probably what, 11, 10, 11 years old, um, maybe a little older than that. And once I started playing and my coaches saw that I had great deal of potential, it was like, uh, Ojeda's her name. Like, you got to let this boy play, continue to play football. So I continued to play from part one or on through high school and then military academy and then college and then obviously pros. But I started at a young age and everybody in our neighborhood played sport. And we had a lot of good players in our neighborhood that I could follow behind and mimic. And, uh, but yeah, that's where my love for sports started when I was really young. My uncles played sports and football. My dad played softball. My mom played softball. My aunties played basketball and softball. So I come from a very talented athletic family. I always like to ask this question because it's it's different for everybody. When did you think, first of all, in high school, hey, I might be able to get a scholarship out of this? Was there a moment? Yeah, when when coaches started coming to my games and, and watching me play on Friday nights and even in basketball, um, I knew that I was I had an opportunity to go on and play college, but I was worried because I didn't I wasn't doing well academically, so I didn't know how I didn't know if that dream would come true uh, because yeah. of my shortcomings in academics. But um, NC State came along and offered me a letter of, uh, offered me a letter of intent. I went to military academy, went to military academy, and was able to uh, get my SAT scores. I had a, got a great deal of training. Thank God. But Miss Blair, God rest her soul, she was fantastic with helping us, um, you know, with getting our SAT scores. And then once I got my SAT scores, Trey, I knew it was on and popping. I knew I was going off to university and I had an opportunity to do what I what I dreamed of doing. And that was playing uh, collegiate sport, playing football, whether it was basketball or football. I knew from that point on I had an opportunity to have a uh, have a pretty, pretty decent career. When you got to North Carolina State, I mean, you played a little bit. Uh, your freshman year, but then you really sort of exploded onto the scene your sophomore year. What was it? Was there a moment in, in practice for the Wolfpack that you thought, or a game like, I might be able to do this at the next level? Well, that that came that didn't come to like my junior year, the year when we went to Tallahassee. We played Florida State. I had five touchdowns in that game, and we ended up losing the game. But to be able to score five touchdowns against a very talented. Uh, team in Florida State who were sending guys to the draft every single year. I knew that I probably I knew that I could play at the highest of level, and probably had an opportunity to playing uh, playing professional football. And from that point on, my confidence just went to a whole another level. And came back my senior year, ended up playing well, set a number of records at NC State. I was ACC Player of the Year. All those accolades I was able to accumulate in my senior year. Uh, so for sure, I knew that I had an opportunity to go on to pro. And, um, and and play. And I came, you know, my junior year, I thought about leaving early. And I sent my information to the National Football League. It came back. You'll be a second, third round pick at best. And I was like, you know, you know, I want to be a first round draft pick. Yeah. And my strength coach said, well, in order for you to do that, you're going to have to come back to school. You're going to have to do this, 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 this and that. And uh, I said, okay. So I went back to school and I did this, this, didn't that, this, this, didn't that. <laughs> and um, and got better and improved and put myself in position to be a first round draft pick in my after my senior year. 
which you were. You were the sixth overall pick of the draft by the Rams in 1999. And, you know, the draft has become such a spectacle now. Look, it was always a fun thing. And, it, you know, it was, it was always something that had a lot of attention. But it has become something that I don't think anybody who went through the drafts in the 80s or the 90s ever anticipated that it would be in terms of the extravaganza and the showcase yeah. for the league. So just so people understand, tell us about your draft day experience and what you were going through as opposed to this you know, massive hysteria that we have now. And it's a traveling circus, basically. Well, the way it is now is, is it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and I'm glad, that, I'm glad the young men are getting an opportunity to experience such an extravagant draft. So kudos to the National Football League and everyone and how they've set it and how they've set it up now. But my experience, I didn't get invited to the draft. I was six overall, and I didn't get invited to New York. So, for one, I was pissed. Um, <laughs> but I went home, back home to my hometown, Gibsonville, North Carolina. My pops had tents set up. We had a cook. We had a uh, we had a fish fry. Um, my friends from my teammates from college was there. My neighborhood friends was there. Family was there. The entire neighborhood was actually at was at our house and in our backyard. And um, and my, my girlfriend at the time, then my wife now was there. So it was, it was great. Again, fried fish. I'm, I'm a country boy. So fried fish, potato salad, mac and cheese, coleslaw, green beans, uh, pinto beans. It was fantastic. All right there in the comforts of my home and, uh, and, and enjoying it and experiencing with the people that, that I love and that I, uh, went through the college ranks with. It was, uh, it was fantastic. Even though I didn't go to New York, that was a fantastic treat to be at home and to, hear my name being called over those loudspeakers. My dad had, had, the, had the TV set up outside, had speakers, the grill was going, music was going, cars was parked in the driveway on the grass. I mean, it was, uh, it was very festive. So I'm glad, I, I'm glad that I was able to experience that with the folks that I love at home in my hometown of Gibsonville, North Carolina. By the way, I'm starving now just listening to that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the fish was amazing. The fish was amazing. <laughs> well, I would imagine anytime you go, you go uh, six overall, almost anything's going to taste pretty good. But yeah. who calls you to let you know that, hey, the Rams are going to take you? Coach Ramil. You know, he, he called my agent and my agent gave me the phone and he was like, hey, Tori, look, uh, you know, you ready to be a Ram? And I was like, yeah. He was like, well, you know, we're coming up next and we're going to select you six overall. And I said, well, let's do it. And then I thought about it. I was like, oh, shit, this team sucks. <laughs> like, I don't want to go to St. Louis. <laughs> they were like 3-13 and 13 or 2-14 and 14 the year before. I was like, what did I, what did I just say? And then I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter, man. I'm, I'm, excited, yeah. to, I'm excited to get drafted. I'll go there. I'll, I'll give everything that I have. And I'll try to be part of the solution of helping get the organization turned around. But Coach Vermeil called me. He was very nice about it. He was excited about it. I heard the folks in the background, you know, uh, in jubilation about the fact that they were about to take me six overall in the NFL draft. So shouts out to Coach Vermeule and Al Saunders and Jay Zygma and Charlie Army and all those folks that believed in me and felt that I could come and be and be a and have an impact on the organization. We'll get more into Coach Vermeule in a minute. He's one of my all-time favorite characters. Oh, I love we, we will we will have some conversations <laughs> about that. But you but you're right. Like you came to the Rams at a very interesting time because they had been sort of a you know they came to St. Louis basically for the money because they couldn't get anything out of the city of Los Angeles. And the first few seasons there were terrible. That's those were my last few years working in St. Louis before I moved on to ESPN. But you came onto the scene as a rookie in 1999, which will always go down as the storybook year of all time in the history of the NFL, because it was all set up 
Trent Green was going to be the quarterback. He's a local kid from Biani High School in St. Louis. He'd spent a few years bouncing around between the Chargers and Washington, but he was going to come and now be the hometown kid to bring the, the Rams back into uh, credibility and be a really good franchise. And then the final preseason game against the Chargers, he blows out his knee. He hadn't missed in that preseason game yet. Had not missed at all. And what was going through your mind as a rookie when you saw this happening right before you played your first ever NFL game? Yeah, I, I was I was sick. I was hurt because, as you mentioned, Trey, our practices with Trent Green were fantastic, phenomenal. The ball never touched the ground. I, I, I can count how many days the ball touched the ground. I mean, that's how in sync we were. That's how he was throwing the ball in our own time we were uh, as an offense. And then to carry that over into the preseason games and all the momentum that we were building, feeling like we had a really good team. We were going to be, we were going to do something special and we were going to do it with Trent Green. And then to see him go down, it was very disappointing, very disheartening. And I felt uh, for Trent um, a lot during that period. And, uh, and I said, you know, what's next? That's what I was thinking like, okay, well, who's next up? Didn't come along Kurt uh, Warner and Kurt rarely got some time with us in practice. Um, you know, most, mostly Trent was taking a lot of those first team reps. But uh, but he came in, Kurt came in, and we never skipped a beat. The balls wasn't hitting the ground. I mean, we were we were rolling. But we, Trent, I was, Trent was so good and so special. And he had such a great command of the offense and such a great command of the team uh, because of the way he carried himself and the way that he prepared. Dick Vermeil said one of the greatest and – we all thought it was a lie at the time. One of the greatest lines ever after the after the Trent Green injury in that preseason game against the Chargers, he said, we will rally around Kurt Warner and we will play good football. And everyone was like, okay, right. Uh, but So why don't we take our first break right here and when we come back with Torrey Hope, we'll talk about how quickly things did start rolling with Kurt Warner on this uh, Half Forgotten History episode with Torrey Holt. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Caesar Sportsbook is simply put, the greatest sports betting app of all time. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you. Because Caesars makes everyone feel like an emperor. When you place your bets, win or lose, you can earn Caesars rewards. Dining, getaways, stays, so many perks, people. Caesars Sportsbook. Visit Caesars.com to see if sports betting is available where you live. All right, back with Tori Holt on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So we left off with Dick Vermeil saying, we will rally around Kurt Warner and play great football. And it was like, yeah, shut up. So you get your first <laughs> game of the season with Warner and it's a home game. And you guys just whoop up on the Baltimore Ravens, 27 to 10. And Kurt came out firing. How early in that game did you think this might not affect us at all? Having Kurt Warner in instead of Trent Green. Pretty early on, pretty early on, because what we were doing in the game was exactly what we were doing in practice. And as I mentioned, you know, you know, the balls wasn't touching the ground. We were very efficient, fast, quick, speedy. I mean, we had a great Hall of Fame running back in Marshall, Hall of Fame wide receiver, Hall of Fame tackle in Orlando Pace, Hall of Fame, like, as I mentioned, Hall of Fame receiver in Isaac Bruce. So Kurt, you know, was came into the offense with a ton of talent around him. All he had to do was just not mess it up. And <laughs> um, and he didn't. And we yeah. came out hitting on all cylinders exactly the way it was in practice. And I knew right then, I said, okay, we got a chance to do something really special. We keep this up along with our offensive line because our offensive line was really good too. They gave us yeah. the time that we needed to execute some of those deeper passing routes and some of those concepts that we had put together. And then they opened up lanes for Marshall to do his thing too. But I knew 
in that first game, we had an opportunity to do something really special. First of all, you had a bye week two, which is just awful. You never yes, want to buy week yes, two. I mean, exactly, 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 exactly. Let's, let's go through these first six games. And again, the Rams had been terrible up till 1999. But in comes you, your rookie year, and then Kurt as the backup quarterback, game one, 27 to 10, game two, 35 to 7, game three, 38 to 10, game four, 42 to 10, 41 to 13, 34 to 3. So you guys sure weren't winning. You were destroying the competition. Your yes. confidence level had to be off the roof through those first six games. Unbelievable. It was here, man. Our confidence level was here, off the charts. And, um, again, we, we knew we had the talent. Uh, we had the, the mentality. We had the unselfishness to really do those kind of things and put up those kind of points. And our defense, too. We can't forget about our defense. Our defense was really good as well. I think our defense was top 10, top 8 in the National Football League that year. So they were creating turnovers, getting the ball back to an offense that can score at a drop of a dime. And then Coach Martz with his ability to call plays and the creativity in which he called plays and then having the guys on the perimeter in the backfield, tight ends as well. And as I, and as I mentioned to the offensive line, to get it done, we were just operating at a, an alarming rate that the National Football League I, had, I don't think had seen uh, for yeah. some time. What Again, what made us very special, Trey, is the fact that we marveled in each other's success. We love seeing one another get off. And I think that what that's that's what empowered us to go out there and to play at the level uh, that we played at that, that year. As I said, you won the first six games. And what, what what's a really interesting twist, your first loss came at Tennessee, which Tennessee, again, yeah. you'd see them again. We'll get to that in a little bit. But after six straight wins, you dropped two in a row. You lose not only to the Titans, but you lost to the Lions. At that point, after six straight wins and two straight losses, where were you in your head as a rookie? Like, wait a minute, we were great. Now, all of a sudden, we can't win a game. Now, I knew we was okay because of the leadership that we had were, you know, with Isaac and Marshall and Adam Timmerman and everyone and, and Ray Agnew and all those guys, Todd Light and those guys on the defensive side of the ball, Mike Jones. And they were saying, look, we just got to – and Coach Barts as well. And Dick Miller, hey, we just got to settle down and just keep doing what we do. You know, things will change. And it did. You know, we got momentum back. We started winning again, and we kept doing what we were doing, offensively scoring points, defensively, as I mentioned, was playing really well. So we had good leadership. And typically, because they were so bad before, I think everybody thought, okay, oh, heck, here go the Rams again. They'll fall back into their losing ways. But I think it was a different mentality. It was a different way of thinking. It was, a, it was new guys. It was a new, uh, it was new energy. There was just a new thought process in terms of, what we were going to do with the year. We didn't want to squander away the year with the type of talent that we had offensively and defensively, and we did. One of the things I always loved about Coach Vermeil is that, you know, Mike Martz at that point was the offensive coordinator, and he was, you know, he was a mad scientist. He was drawing up all this kind of stuff. But I'll never forget Dick Vermeil, whenever he felt like, okay, we're getting a little too crazy here, he would just get on the headset and say, give the ball the 28. In other words, Marshall Falk, like, give the ball the 28. Like, every once in a while, it felt like Marks needed to be reined in and reminded that, hey, we got an MVP here who's going to go to the Hall of Fame. Let's make sure he's involved. You know, well, Mike's, Mike's first thought is, look, and Mike loves, Coach Marks loves to run the football. And he talked about, look, I'll run the football as long as we're running it efficiently and we're getting something out of the run game. But I like to throw the football. You got to think back to the Eric Coriel days. You know, that's where he come under. And, you know, and, and the concepts that he spent countless hours coming up with. And when you look out there and you have – Myself and Isaac Bruce and Ricky Prohl and Isaac Keem, it's hard not to want to throw the ball down after down after down. And not only that, 
he knew that we could get open down after down after down. So it was tough for him to pull back the reins in regards to throwing the ball. But that's where a good head coach comes in and Dick Vermeil and say, hey, look, we also have to make sure that we do remain balanced, give the ball to one of our better players, a Hall of Fame player, um, and, and Marshall Falk. And to Coach Smart's credit, he listened. Coach Vermeil, too. Yeah, he loved to run the football and establish some balance. But he loved bombs over Baghdad, too. He loved the <laughs> fact that the ball was going down the field the way that it was. And we were celebrating, and that crowd was enthused. Don't get it twisted. Coach McMill loved that part of it as well. He certainly did. And so you guys, you wrap up the regular season. I think after you lost uh, six, you won seven straight. Then you you lost the last game of the regular season. But you guys already locked up home field advantage and everything. Correct. So it was irrelevant. Trey, and you know this, once we got rolling, once there was a rhythm within our offense, and Kurt was hitting that back foot and, and letting it go, and we were getting out, getting open on the perimeter. It was, it wasn't a whole lot that you can do defensively to slow us down. And Coach Al Saunders used to always say to us, "When you guys make your mind up and you lock in on what your assignments are, there's not a lot of teams that you that can stop you." And we were able to do that that day. So then you get to the NFC Championship game, and it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Ooh, physical. Yeah, I mean, we everyone was expecting this thing was just going to continue and everything to go. That was the weirdest title game I can ever remember because that Bucks defense was suffocating. And the Rams defense, by the way, which was very underappreciated that entire year, was also up to the challenge. But it was a weird, weird game. It was five to three Rams at the half. <laughs> was there any part of you that ever thought, yeah, we're going to leave five to three at the half of the <laughs> NFC championship. Never thought that. Never thought that with all of the offensive power that we had, never thought that we have five points on the board. But again, as to your credit, to your to what you mentioned, our defense, once again, very solid, very strong, held their own in that game as well. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers matched up well against us, particularly up front. Warren Sapp and Marcus Jones and those guys, they could get after the quarterback. They were really, really, really good. And you saw that in that game. So I think it was somewhat of a matchup problem that gave us some issues in that game. And then that cover two, you know, being physical on the perimeter and uh, and just not 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 hitting on all the cylinders like we had done previous games uh, against that Tampa Bay Bucks team. Uh, it was a challenge. But in that game, we showed a great deal of physical and mental toughness uh, to be able to win that game. And Coach Vermeil said to us, I remember in training camp when we would run those two, when we would run those time gassers after practice in full pads, when we would have those live two-minute sessions, when we would have those live red zone sessions. He reminded us that we was going to need those moments at some point in the season to get to where we were trying to go. And against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, we were able to pull from those moments in training camp those tough, hard training camps that Coach Vermeil ran, we was able to pull for those moments to get through that game and to get that win. And, of course, Ricky Prohl, the only touchdown catch in that game, which was unbelievable down the line, right? I, I feel like Ricky Prohl doesn't get enough credit because everything he did was sort of overshadowed, right, by whether it was you or Isaac or Azakim. And then twice in a Super Bowl, he had what could have been the game-winning or game-tying touchdown in two Super Bowls, and yet Adam Benatari and the Patriots said, hold my beer twice. For the outside and for the media, they may not have given Ricky the credit. But for us, we knew how valuable he was. Uh, we gave him a, a ton of credit. And to this day, we still give him a ton of credit. You know, when I first got into the National Football League and walked into the Rams locker room, Ricky Pro was one of the guys that took me under his wing and showed me how to be 
via pro. So I have nothing but love and respect for Ricky and um, and appreciate him to the utmost. But when his number was called, he was ready. And that's how he prepared every single day. That's how he handled himself. He knew that Marshall, myself and Isaac uh, will, and, and Oz and, and others were going to get a bulk of the touches. But when his number was called, he was always ready. And he never complained, even though at times he may have had a, 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 a chance to to gripe and say, hey, get me the ball more because he was open. But he never showed anybody up. He never complained. And when that moment showed up against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and others, Ricky stepped up and got it done. And again, just speaks to the type of professionalism that he that he carried himself with every single day and, and more importantly on Sundays. So you get to Super Bowl 34 in Atlanta. Side note, worst weather Super Bowl Ever. It was 33 and freezing rain the entire week. Right. It was just atrocious. But, okay, at Super Bowl 34, Dick Vermeil last coached a team in the Super Bowl in, in Super Bowl 15 when the Eagles lost to the Raiders 27 to 10. What was Dick's message to the team that week as you're going up against the Tennessee Titans, the team that ended your six-game winning streak to start the season? He said, guys, just do what we've done all year. Embrace the moment. And have you and have fun with each other, and, and, you know that that was that was his moment. You know, be in the moment of what's happening. Don't take this for granted because who knows that we'll be back in this situation again. And so that was Dick's message, and that's how we played. I think we came out, we played loosely, we played, we had fun, we enjoyed one another. The game was back and forth. Uh, we were able to make enough plays in that game, obviously, as you know, to win. But I go back, you, you think about Mike Jones' play and how that set up. And I go back to training camp, those hard, brutal training camp that Coach Vermeil put us under came back to that situation where Mike Jones was able to kind of bait, I guess, them into that play and then having the strength and the worthwhile to make that play when it needed to happen. But Coach Vermeil, again, his message was, guys, do what we've always done all year long, enjoy the moment, but more importantly, enjoy each other. And that's what we did. For those that don't know, Mike Jones was also a kid from St. Louis yes. who made the tackle of Kevin Dyson. It was a 23-16 to 16 score, and Steve McNair, God bless him, was unbelievable oh. on that final drive, <laughs> trying to bring Tennessee back to tie the game, Gosh. running around like crazy. Kevin Carter, DeMarco Farr, they were all so <laughs> gassed trying to chase McNair. To this day, I still think that's the greatest tackle in Super Bowl history because it was a seven-point game. And he tackled Dyson one yard short of what would have been the tying touchdown. To talk about Steve McNair, one of the strongest human beings oh. I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I'm talking about Kevin Carter, who's 6'6", 290, couldn't bring this man down. DeMarco Farr, who's 275, whatever he was. Ray Agnew, and 280, 290. Nope. They, he was so strong and so competitive. Uh, it was um, – I, I was sitting there saying to myself, I, I couldn't believe it, Trey, at how strong yeah. Steve McNair was and how competitive he was. But Mike Jones, to your point, Mike was a guy, too, my rookie year, was always the first one in the building, sometimes the last one in the building. And he worked out religiously. Like, he was, he was, he was such a pro. And when he made that tackle, it took me back to those moments when I would see him in the weight room in the mornings training. When I would come into the building, he was already there. And I was a rookie, you know what I'm saying? So you, you would think I should be the first one in the building lifting and ready, but he was one of the first ones in the building lifting, watching tape, 
um, educate himself so he can go out and play on Sundays and play at a high level. And when when your best was needed or when our best was needed or when his best was needed, he stepped up and got it done. And I think a lot of it had to do with how Mike prepared himself during the week. And then the, just the, I call it that grown man scrimp, not yeah. strength, that grown man scrimp that he <laughs> used to bring Kevin Dyson down one yard short of the goal line. Mike Jones, man, we, we love him to death. He is one yeah. of the major reasons why we have a ring on our finger. So your rookie year, you come in, you're part of this amazing offense with a backup quarterback who, of course, goes on to the Hall of Fame. You win the Super Bowl. You've got to think, man, this is easy. This is going to yeah. be great. And then, boom, right to the next year, Vermeil's out. Mike March is now the head coach. What was that like for you? I was so young still in the National Football League, so I, I didn't – for me, it was more uh, so, um, you know, just trying to make sure that I could be in the best of shape uh, to make the team and, you know, to go on. But I was also too disappointed, you know, because Coach Vermeil did such a great job with us. Um, and he drafted me, so my respect for him was was 100 and still is. And so to see that happen to him, uh, again, was disappointing. And But I knew with Coach Marks and being the office coordinator and working with him all year long, I knew we was also in good shape too. Uh, but I was, yeah, I was certainly – a little disappointed and seeing Coach Vermeil go on because of I knew we had a head coach that believed in us and he cared so much for his players. And to see that leave the building uh, was disappointing. But we had enough talent. We had good coaches still, and we were still able to go on and still do some special things. Absolutely. So let's take our second break here. And when we come back with Tory Holt, we'll talk about the transition. And the one play that I think sums up the greatest show on turf better than any other play and then, of course, everything else that went on in Tory's career. We're back with that uh, on this episode of Half Forgotten History. Guys, we're almost here. Super Bowl 56 is just days away as the Rams look to become the second team in as many seasons to win the whole thing on their home field, while the Bengals are trying to become the 21st different team to hoist the Lombardi Trophy. Los Angeles is holding steady as a four-and-a-half-point favorite, but Joey Burrow and the Bengals do not care. Including playoffs, Cincinnati has won and covered the last six games Burrow has started. They were underdogs in five of those games. Now, unlike the Bengals, a lot was expected of the Rams. They were favored in 17 of their 20 games this season, including playoffs. But the Rams have failed to cover in eight of their last 12 games they were laying points. Not surprisingly, the two starting quarterbacks are the favorites at Caesar Sportsbook to win the Super Bowl MVP, with Matthew Stafford at plus 120 and Burrow at plus 220. Quarterbacks have been named Super Bowl MVP in 11 of the previous 15 Super Bowls, along with two wideouts, Julian Edelman and Santonio Holmes. And believe it or not, two linebackers, Malcolm Smith and Von Miller. Miller is 40 to 1, by the way, to win the award. He could become the first defensive player to be named Super Bowl MVP twice. Find more of Trey's Trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All right, back with Tory Holt now on this episode of Half Forgotten History. And I've, I've sort of alluded to this a couple of times, but if someone says to me, Trey, Give me the one play that sums up the greatest show on turf. For me, Tori, it would be game one, 2000, Monday Night Football. You guys, as the defending champs, welcome in the Denver Broncos. I think it's tied at 13 in the second quarter. And Martz dials up this exotic play where it gets Ozakim on a one-on-one -on, -one on really a box safety out there. I think his name was Billy Nichols to the, to the right side. And he makes one juke and he's gone. And then you become his personal escort 
into the end zone. It was like a 70-something yard touchdown play. And you guys are high-fiving and talking to each other, running down the sideline into the end zone. I mean, that to me sums up the greatest show on turf. That play was a man-to-man situation. It was 0-22, uh, Z-stop. So you had double crossings underneath. And um, F out, I think it was. And I think they brought pressure. Oz was hot. Kurt hitting. Yeah. So here I come on my zero route. I, w- I knew I wasn't getting the ball with the pressure coming. And um, and Oz makes the guy miss. So it's just natural for me to turn up the field and look for the next man to block. There was no one there to block. And that was one of the things that we took pride in as well is getting extra blocks for receivers, for our fellow receivers and running backs down the field to extend the run or to extend the play. Um, and typically when you have those big blocks down the field, the result's probably going to be a touchdown. And this was a situation. So I turn up. There was no one to block. So I just waved the ox. Come on, man. Let's go. <laughs> He's just taking our running. It just turned into a track meet. So I was asking, well, what are we going to do tonight, man, after this after this game when we win this game? <laughs> he was like, well, we're just going to go get, get something to eat and just go hang out or whatever. Like we were – that's the type of fun that we were having playing the game. And I think that's what drew everybody. And even for you to highlight that as one of your greatest moments of the greatest show on turf, that's the kind of mentality – that we had. And that's the way that we practice, Trey. We practice that way. We had fun and we went out and we showcased it on, on, on national TV. It was the most unusual thing. You, you were his personal escort into the end zone and you, you guys were just chatting the entire way. And that, that year you finished, I think 10 and six made it to the postseason and, and, and lost a game there. But then 2001 comes around. And once again, you guys are clicking, everything's moving. And I think there was a Sunday night game where you guys went up to new England and it was yep. a cold night outdoors at Foxborough. I think you beat them 17-7, 14-7. And you guys are going to meet in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 36 in New Orleans. And I remember being there, and I swear to you, to everyone, it didn't feel like a championship. It felt like it was a coronation of a second Super Bowl win for the Rams. What were your, what were your thoughts going into that game? Oh, it was very confident. You know, it was very confident. No different than the Patriots. It was very confident that we had, a, we had a strong chance of, of winning that game if we played the way we were capable of playing. And um, so that's, that was our thoughts coming into it. And, um, you know, we, did, we, we were moving the ball in that game early on, as, as, you, as, as those who watched the game saw. But we, once we got in the red zone, we wasn't able to punch it in and get, and get touchdowns. We had, to get field, we had to take field goals. And I think we even missed some field goals in that game. Uh, but we were very confident, Trey, coming into that game to that football game, feeling like we had an opportunity to win a, a second Super Bowl. It was just a weird game all the way around. And that was Tom Brady's first year after coming in for Drew Bledsoe. And, and you know, the, the Patriots were really physical on you guys and, and banged you guys off the line. But with all that said and done, once again, who shows up but Ricky Pearl? Catches the touchdown to tie the game at 17. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. John Madden, who was calling the game with Pat Summerall at the time, there was like one something left or right around the two-minute mark left in the game. And, and he basically said – I think the, the, the Patriots should just play for overtime, get into overtime. And Tom Brady and Bill Belichick had different ideas. And what was going through your mind as you're on the sidelines watching what we now know would be the evolution and the birth of the dynasty that becomes the New England Patriots, watching them go down the field against the defense, thinking they may get a kick to win this thing. We knew offensively if we got extra opportunities because of the momentum that we had, we, we felt like we could win that football game. But yeah. I'm standing over there on the side like saying, somebody tackle these guys. <laughs> <laughs> just stop these guys. And they just kept 
matriculating the ball down the field, just executing uh, their game plan. And I thought defensively we played a little too soft in that situation. I thought we could have got up on those on those wide receivers and made it a little tougher for them to complete some passes. But to New England's credit, I mean, they Tom and those guys, they executed, got in position uh, for the field goal. And then Adam Benatieri, who will be a Hall of Famer himself, was able to kick the ball through the uprights and they were able to win. But while I'm sitting over there, yeah, I'm like, man, can we get a stop? If we get into overtime, if we get the ball back uh, as an offense, we'll win this football game. But we never got an opportunity to get back out on the football field, which was uh, which was disheartening, man. Very disheartening. So in your first three years in the league, you went to the Super Bowl twice. You won it once. You lost it once. You had to think, ah, we'll be back, right? Yeah, I sure did. I sure did. And and we never did. For the longest of time, I can never understand why we didn't. When you are thrust into that type of success early on, that becomes the expectations. Now, we we try, we try to continue to strive for those uh, moments again, but we never reached the pinnacle. And then guys started going to different teams. Coaches started to move. There was bickering and whatnot going on within the organization. And things kind of turned sour for us. We did get back to some playoff games, um, but we never got back to uh, what what I had become accustomed to and a lot of us had become accustomed to, and that was going to Super Bowls. And to your to your point, I thought every year or every other year, I would be playing in Super Bowls. I thought after that second Super Bowl, I said, well, shoot, I probably play in at least five. And uh, we never got back. Yeah, only Tom Brady does that. Yeah, man. <laughs> only Tom Brady, right? Obviously, you bounce around a little bit uh, toward the end of your career, but you'll always be a Ram. Yes. I, I know you don't campaign for this, but why do you think you're not in the hall? Because let me let me just read some things to you. You know this. You have an NFL record, six consecutive seasons with 1,300 receiving yards, consecutive seasons with 90-plus receptions at six. Uh, was a record. You were on the NFL all-decade team of the 2000s. You see Isaac Bruce in the Hall. You see Kurt. You see Marshall. Why isn't Torrey Holt in the Hall of Fame? That's a tough one, Trey. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's I don't know. I, I guess you know the you know it's, it's certainly up to the voters um, to, to make it happen. But because of so many, I played with so many great wide receivers and so many great players on that team. Um, you know, I think I've kind of uh, been pushed. To, Pushed to the to the side for for a bit, but I do feel like I'm getting closer. I've been a finalist yeah. the last couple of years, and the era in which I played is you know Marvin Harrison, Randy Moss, Terrell Owens, and myself were the four wide receivers on the All Decade team, and all those guys are in yeah. all in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So I think it's a matter of time, and I've said to myself, Tori, you just got to be patient, you know. So I I, I lean in on on prayer and my faith. And hopefully at some point, all of the voters will, uh, will feel compelled uh, to vote me into the pro football hall of fame. And hopefully it's in 2022. Well, I hope it is too. Look, I mean, to me, it's a glaring omission and I love the hall. I go every year that the architect of that team, Dick Vermeil is not in the hall. And one of the biggest contributors on what was literally the greatest offense we've ever seen in terms of one statistic, which is yards per play, no one's ever been better at yards per play than the 2000 Rams. It is, it is somewhat inexcusable to me that you aren't the recipient and the owner of a gold jacket. So I just want to let you know that's where I feel as a fan Thanks, watching you guys play all those years. And it's so funny now because I feel like every offense at this point now 
is trying to do what you guys did 10, yeah. 20 years ago, right? Everyone's yeah, trying I, to do what you guys did. Yeah, I, I see it a lot. And, and, and occasionally myself and Isaac and others will text each other and be like, yo, did you just see that high angle seven? Or did you just see that play? That's what we was doing in St. Louis. And why wouldn't they? I mean, it worked. It was it was schematically drawn up properly. And if you have players and a, and a team that can execute it, why wouldn't you use what we were doing? And I see it on the collegiate level. I certainly used some of it when I was on the high school level coaching, and you're seeing it on the pro level. Uh, guys doing or offensive coordinators or teams doing what the uh, the greatest show on turf did offensively, and it worked. Uh, and, and when we were doing the trade, a lot of a lot of the pundits were saying, "What in the world are they doing? Why why are they throwing the ball so much? Why are they taking these kinds of risks when they can turn around and hand the ball off to Marshall Falk?" What Coach Marsh's thought process was. Hey, I have the guys that can do it. They want to do it. They're skilled enough to do it. They have the talent. I'm going to call it. And uh, we loved it. And it, it fit the skill set that we had. It fit the mentality that we had. And we kind of reset the trend in terms of how offensive football is played. And you're seeing it now today. One of the things that I always respect is guys that find success post-career because like so much of your life is wrapped up in being a football player since you were a kid it's yeah. everything you'd strive for your dream is to live that out it's so important to find something to do post-career and you've dabbled in a bunch of stuff you you know you've done some broadcasting but you also have your foundation uh, and your construction company tell us a little bit about both of those things you can go to hopebrothersfoundation.org to learn more about what we're doing but we help support young kids with a parent or guardian that's battling cancer. We lost our mom to lymphoma in 1996 and vowed to do something in honor of her name. So we are supporting young kids, providing peer empathy, educational support to those families so they can better cope with dealing with cancer. Because once cancer enters a home tray, I mean, it changes the whole dynamic of the home and how kids and how parents live. And we just tried to be there uh, to help educate them, provide that peer empathy so they can better cope with it. And then Hope Brothers uh, Construction here in Raleigh, North Carolina, my brother and I are business partners. We have an opportunity. We've had opportunities to work on some incredible projects. Uh, the Raleigh Union Station here, the new Raleigh Union Station, we were a part of that project. The new cancer center, the UNC Rex Cancer Center that's going up here in Raleigh, our construction team uh, is a part of that project and numerous of projects uh, that we're doing here in the area. But to have an opportunity to play a role in the infrastructure in our uh, in our home state where I was born and raised to me is uh, I, I pitch myself every day knowing that we have played a role in that. Uh, so we're really excited about Hope Brothers Construction and the future of our company. Again, excited about uh, Hope Brothers Foundation and what we're doing and helping young families with a parent or guardian that's battling cancer. Well, listen, you were a part of a massive infrastructure and one of the greatest offenses in the history of the NFL. So I guess it should come as no surprise that you're continuing right. to work in infrastructure <laughs> right. and, build, and build things up. Listen, man, I, I loved watching you as a player. I loved watching that team. And I really wanted to get you on the show for a long time. So I appreciate your time today. And hopefully, if not too distant future, we'll be talking about Hall of Famer, Tory Holt. Yes, sir. Thank you, Trey. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, bro. It's a pleasure. You got it, man. So once again, thanks to Tory Holt. We'll see what happens come Super Bowl Sunday and his potential election for his induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And speaking of the Hall of Fame, next week's guest has a say or two about that. Longtime NFL voice in the media who came from Enfield, Connecticut to become one of the most influential writers and voices of covering the National Football League. That is Peter King. He'll join us next time 
on Half Forgotten History. We'll see you then.